Please be seated. Good evening to you. Ezekiel chapter 28. Tonight, continuing through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you're without a Bible, just flag one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and put a Bible in your hand marked to our passage this evening. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight and do make a friend of that, that Bible. We pick things up here in uh, chapter 28 and having been separated from it for a week or so, it is at least important to remember that uh, Ezekiel and, and God prophesying through him a uh, prophesying concerning uh, the city of Tyre. And in chapter 26, there was the prophecy of Tyre's destruction, which was ultimately fulfilled by both the Babylonians and under Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great over a period of 240 years. And then in chapter 27, there is the description of the great uh, lament, the great sorrow that the destruction of the city of Tyre would uh, bring to the seafaring world and the ancient Mediterranean world as a result of, of the loss of, of her wealth and merchandise. And now in chapter 28, he continues his uh, prophecy and rebuke of Tyre by rebuking uh, the king or the ruler over the city of Tyre. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says uh, the Lord. And so here is the, the ruler over uh, the city of Tyre that is being addressed uh, specifically. And thus says the Lord, because your heart is lifted up, and that is a Bible way of saying uh, he was full of pride. And uh, pride, uh, it, it means to, in a New Testament sense, it means to see myself above. Uh, it is always awful. Uh, pride, it, it, is the, it is the awful sin. It is the, it is the seed of all sin in human, in human history. Uh, even as sin would be uh, 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 expressed in our lives. And, but that pride of seeing myself uh, above and uh, in, it, it, in it, as horrible as it is when it takes the form of seeing myself above other people. And nothing good ever comes out of my mouth or out of my life or out of my attitudes as a result of seeing myself uh, above other people. And it's to be believe a lie anyway. But it is damaging and as destructive and as uh, kind of mortifying, shocking as that is, there, there's a worse expression of pride and that is to see myself above God. And uh, all disobedience to God, all uh, ignoring of God, which is so common in our culture and our world, is, it all goes back to pride. And uh, so this is what he's going to rebuke in, in this, uh, this ruler's life. He, and, and he says, because your pride is lifted up and you say, I am God. Now that's lifted up in pride. When a person uh, can, uh, not as a joke, uh, say, I am God, but actually believe themselves to be a uh, God, to put themselves on the level of God. Of course, it wasn't unusual in the ancient world, uh, for certainly for the Caesars ultimately and the Roman Empire, but uh, long before them for rulers in the ancient world to uh, esteem themselves as divine. 
And here they are in these elevated positions, and as a result of being in these elevated positions, they consider themselves to be uh, smarter than everyone else, better than everyone else, uh, certainly some kind of a half step at least above uh, humanity and uh, thus a God. And, uh, the, the, and so this was a, a prevailing kind of view for rulers in the ancient world, and, and uh, he, he succumbed to it. He, uh, believed it. He shouldn't have believed it. No one should ever believe that, uh, but he did believe it. And I mean, it, again, just, uh, just try to imagine the pride that is involved in convincing myself that I am a God. I mean, how much evidence do you need and I need on a daily basis to know that we are not a God? And the, the Old Testament prophet says, if you have to walk in order to get from point A to point B, you're not a God. Because God is omnipresent. He's already at both places at the same time. Uh, we can't keep ourselves from catching the common cold. We have to bathe daily uh, in order to uh, make our company bearable. Uh, in, in a 24, 48-hour period for those that are coming into contact with us. I mean, on every level, uh, everything in life, every minute in life is teaching us that, that we are not a God. And yet he convinced himself that he was. I remember, of course, this was the big thing of the New Age movement way back, what was it, the 80s and the 90s when that was all big and everybody was a God and they were a part of the whole big whatever and uh, that was going on. I remember uh, seeing Barry White on television, and I was a huge Barry White fan. That may surprise you, but I was. And uh, his rendition of Standing in the Shadow of Love, I mean, that's, that's the rendition. Uh, you can put it, your LP on, on your stereo and put it on there, listen to the first minute, go out and mow your lawns and come in and make a tuna sandwich and hear the end of the song. It's a long song. But he was on this uh, show being interviewed and I really enjoyed his creativity and his talent and, and uh, the Love Unlimited Orchestra and all that stuff, really quite talented. And uh, he declared in the course of the interview that he considered himself to be a god. And uh, I, I knew he was good, but... <laughs> It never entered my mind that he had entered into that kind of category. And yet, that's kind of the new age, uh, new age belief. I mean, all of Mormonism is based, uh, founded on this belief. You've got the doctrine of eternal progression, uh, summarized by the, the Mormon leader, Lorenzo Snow. And uh, as he declares it for Mormonism, as man is now, God once was. As God now is, man may be. And it's the same, same old lie. And, uh, and this is, was Satan's failure, uh, certainly before the ruler of Tyre. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, how you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God, and yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths uh, of the pit. The Antichrist, when he comes during the tribulation period, 
He, uh, this is going to be a lie and a folly that he's going to believe. As we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of the Lord, the, uh, the, the tribulation period, will not come unless the falling away uh, comes first, the rapture. And the man of sin is revealed, uh, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped, so that he sits as a God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And uh, this was the, the view of the prince as well. And, and there's a whole world of people who consider themselves, they might not articulate it this way, but they live as if they are God, as if there is no other God and, and nothing supreme in the world beyond themselves. And so you say, I am a God. I sit in the seats of God in the midst of uh, the seas. And yet, and that's an important yet, you are a man. I mean, you can fool yourself on planet Earth, and plenty of people do uh, fool themselves in terms of what we can convince ourselves that we are, but uh, nobody's ever fooled in heaven. Uh, yet you are a man and not a God. This is known as clarity. Uh, again, uh, back to the, the two great uh, rules of the universe. Uh, uh, number one, there is a God, and number two, you're not him. And when we say that, you know, it's almost like, ah, this is like the comedy hour for the pastor. Except that's in the culture. That's what people believe. And uh, they may not be able to articulate it with that kind of boldness, but they live that way. And they believe that, uh, that way. So yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God, though you've convinced yourself that you are. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. One of the reasons that he thought and became convinced that he was uh, a god was because of his, his wisdom, his expertise. It was no small thing to, be, uh, to reign over the, a prosperous uh, kind of kingdom like uh, Tyre was a, a part of with, with the Phoenicians. And so uh, he was doubtless very talented, very, very smart, very, very wise, able to look at a situation, assess it, consistently make great decisions so that everything that he was associated with would prosper. And there's all, a whole world full of men and women who are exactly like that. You put them in these settings and, uh, and they can take companies, they can take organizations to places that uh, maybe only one in a million literally can do in the world. Uh, but it never makes us a god. Uh, it it uh, just makes us a very talented and very gifted man or, or woman. But the thing about this kind of of success that can follow us is that when people get, uh, it, have experienced the kind of success that he did, that somehow I'm special beyond the realm uh, of, of man. And so this was one of the reasons that he had, uh, he had convinced himself of, uh, of the fact that he, he was divine. Tremendous wisdom, even compared here uh, to Daniel. And then the second great thing that is such a source of, of, of man elevating himself and thinking of himself is more than a man in human history. And it's alive in our culture uh, as much as ever it's been alive uh, in any culture, and that is the, the possession of riches. 
And by your wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your uh, riches. And so uh, he became proud because of his riches, and certainly in this Western materialistic culture that we live in, uh, these same kind of tendencies are uh, nurtured, where people consider themselves to be superior to other human beings on the basis of the car that they drive or the home that they live in or the town that they live in and, and uh, uh, the, the clothes that they wear and, and, and so forth. And a person uh, can come to believe this kind of thing about themselves, a terrible, terrible uh, self-deception. Uh, self, uh, and yet, uh, even Jesus himself warned about the danger of riches to uh, a person being able to see things clearly, spiritually, to see uh, uh, their need for God, their need for salvation, their need for the forgiveness of uh, sins. Uh, Jesus spoke to his disciples in the encounter with, uh, following the encounter with the rich young ruler, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and it really is. And the disciples were astonished at, at his works, uh, his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, because to have riches is very easy then to trust in riches rather than in God. And thankfully, uh, all people can be saved. But it's the very kind of thing that uh, causes us. This is why when you look around, uh, look around the entire United States, look around California, and there's a reason why the, the Central Valley is the, if California has a Bible Belt, it is the Central Valley. And it is because we are uh, the more modest, uh, I'm not trying to be clever with Modesto, but I mean uh, the more modest part of, of California. And you see how uh, low the rate of people becoming Christians are in these highly influential cities and counties. And they consider themselves to be, you know, too intellectual for it or too what for it. Or sometimes they're just too busy and distracted uh, as a result of it. And sometimes it's just arrogance and pride. They would never believe in something, never accept that they have a need uh, before God that they share with every other human being, no matter what their uh, class or uh, status in life. It's a tremendous obstacle. It's pride and a tremend tremendous obstacle spiritually to uh, coming to know uh, the Lord. Paul considers all of this so prevalent and important that he, he, he warned in his first epistle, chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. There's the temptation. Uh, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. In verse 6, Ezekiel goes on to now describe the future humbling or destruction that is going to come to the prince of Tyre. Sometimes you'll hear a proverb in the Old Testament, and it'll be quoted, and that is uh, that pride comes before a fall in, in the quoting of, of, the, of the proverb. But it's a misquotation of the Bible, uh, of that, that proverb. The proverb actually states that a haughty spirit comes before a, 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 a fall and pride comes before destruction. Uh, if, if I do not recognize the pride in my life, especially as it relates to God and an elevated view of myself, 
Uh, it will not only end in a stumbling, bumbling kind of life uh, this side of eternity, uh, but destruction on, on the other side. And so there's always a judgment that comes on, on pride. And I, I ask the Lord all the time, just, just keep me alert to this. Not that I have any particular uh, cause or particular tendency toward uh, pride above anybody else that I'm aware of, but maybe that's pride, right? But you see, this is why I got to pray about these things. But, uh, but I've seen so much destructiveness with pride and knowing that, that, it, it, that it, it, must, it will always end in problems. It will always uh, do uh, damage, and it will ultimately bring judgment upon ourselves. And therefore, thus says the Lord God. And you notice, uh, here you are, here's all your self-assessment on the basis of your self-assessment that you are a God, and uh, here's a word from the singular uh, Lord God. Because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you. You're going to be conquered. The most terrible uh, of the nations. And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Uh, One very... um, gigantic sign uh, that a person is not a god uh, is if you die. That's just like a dead giveaway (laughs) that you are disqualified uh, for considering yourself to be divine in, in any way. I mean, if we cannot keep ourselves from dying, what kind of a god are we? And, and so, you know, the Lord is poking at him a little bit here and trying to get his attention. And, and as the old joke goes, when you talk about death, that in terms of human history, I mean, you see the genealogies in the Old Testament, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And I mean, that's the, been the march of death through human history from the, the Garden of Eden. It, it reflects the fact that we all come from the Garden of Eden, that we're fallen men and women. That's exactly uh, what we are. And uh, death exposes us to be merely human beings. And, uh, and, and again, as the old uh, joke goes, that uh, uh, death is batting about a thousand percent in human history. For every person that's born, uh, that person ultimately dies. None of us are qualified. Uh, for for uh, deity, the fact that we age, the fact that we death, uh, die, the fact that we can't hold off death, is uh, the fact that we can be slain. What kind of a god can be slain? What kind of a god can't protect itself from the Babylonians and from Alexander the Great? They're great forces, but I mean, if you're God, you ought to be able to do it. Again, all of life is teaching us that we're nothing of the sort. And will you, uh, verse 9, still say before him uh, who slays you with the sword in his hand and to your chest that I am a God? You're going to hold that position all the way to that point powerless before another human being who doesn't even consider himself to be God. And in the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised, and that is the, uh, the, the death of the godless. The uncircumcised was like uh, the, the most common person with no concern for God at all. And by the hands of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And there is only one 
uh, Lord God. And so this self-deception would ultimately be completely exploded uh, on the day of, uh, of his, his, uh, his death. So the problem wasn't with the fact that this man prospered or that he was wise and became rich off of his wisdom. It's just that he, he then uh, uh, made that uh, all of that uh, a source of his pride and then gained a uh, high, very exalted uh, view uh, of him himself. And again, the whole world today that we live in is filled with these kind of people. The arrogance, the arrogance towards God today in our culture. And uh, you just look at people, what they think, what they do, what they f- speak about the church, what they speak about God, what they speak about Jesus Christ. And I think to myself, you better hope there isn't a God. But I know better. There is. And I hope you humble yourself related uh, to that. But the arrogance of our culture, how God is treated, how Christians are treated, how it's all mocked and scorned, and even the idea of God, the arrogance within our culture is just awful. And all of us, before we come to know the Lord, I mean, all of that's going on, but uh, just to be uh, aware of it, there is no future um, in pride, uh, not one bit. And then in uh, chapter 11, I mean, verse 11, Ezekiel moves on and he begins to prophesy, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, so we had the prince of Tyre, who was the ruler of Tyre, now you have the king uh, of, of Tyre, and the language changes. In other words, God now moves from rebuking the prince of Tyre to rebuking now the king, uh, who, uh, the true king behind the prince of Tyre, and it is none other than the devil himself. And uh, why would Ezekiel bring uh, the devil up at this particular point in this uh, prophecy against uh, against the, the prince of Tyre because uh, he, uh, the, the, the king of Tyre was the true king behind all of the thoughts, all of the lies, all of the motivations, all of the pride and arrogance of the prince of Tyre and believing what it is uh, that, that he uh, believed. Uh, and everything he believed, as we saw in, in, uh, in quoting from Isaiah chapter 14, everything that the prince of, of Tyre believed about himself is what the devil believed about himself and, and was fall, fell and was judged uh, related to it. It's just to believe the same, uh, same old lies in, uh, in, in human uh, history. And so uh, God uh, it, it now moves to talk about the devil. We'll see a little bit as we go through this now that uh, it's clear he's not talking about a mere man. He's not talking about the prince there uh, of Tyre uh, because this, whoever he's uh, speaking about, this prophecy of judgment, uh, this being was present in the Garden of Eden, as we'll see in verse 13. No king of Tyre was ever present in the Garden of Eden. Uh, he's described as an anointed cherub. No uh, king uh, or prince of Tyre was uh, ever an angelic being. And then uh, he was, is described as being perfect or sinless at the time that he was created. Only Adam and Eve, in terms of mankind, are perfect at the time of, of their uh, creation. And Adam and Eve are clearly not being referred to here. And uh, he's described as possessing free access to God's holy mountain and to the glory of heaven. And no uh, prince of Tyre had that. And so he said, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection and full of wisdom, 
And uh, so uh, Satan was created uh, full of, of wisdom and, uh, and perfect in beauty. Uh, you were in Eden, the garden of uh, God, and every precious stone was your covering. So uh, uh, Satan uh, was an angelic being, uh, being probably an archangel on the level of Michael and Gabriel, and listen to the descri description of his beauty. Never think of the devil, uh, not then, uh, not in the future. Uh, as some kind of, you know, ugly, grotesque thing as he might be portrayed in, in movies or TV shows or uh, fiction or, or, or books or that kind of thing, or um, even in cartoons where he's got a pitched fork and a, uh, a pitchfork and a, pitch, a fork tail and, and, a, and red pajamas and all, all of that. Uh, he, he was uh, beautiful, I mean, almost beyond description. Every precious stone was your covering. Uh, the sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper. I mean, we, we'd love to have one of these in the jewel box. This was what he, he was clothed in. Uh, beryl, onyx, uh, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Your workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you in the day that you were uh, created. And so the incredible beauty uh, that, he, uh, that he had, and you were further the anointed cherub who covers, and so it refers to the fact that he was a guardian cherub in the heavenly scene. He was a part of an inner uh, circle of angels, apparently, who was closest in their access to God. They guarded uh, the holiness of, of uh, God. And so, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were in the holy mountain of God. You whack, walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones, again speaking about the glory uh, of heaven and, and the holiness of, of God's presence. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created. And it is important to understand that about the devil. He's more powerful than any of us, but he is a created being and uh, no match for God. Uh, as, as infinite as the gap is between God and man, uh, that's how big the gap is between God and the devil. Uh, you have the creator and then you have the creation. And the devil is a part of the creation and he's no match for God and God's grip on us is, is very, very firm. And this, all of this was uh, perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found uh, in uh, you. And by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Uh, and therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of, of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, uh, from the uh, midst of the fiery stones. And so speaking about the devil being cast down from his exalted position in heaven, you remember when the 70 came back uh, that had been sent out by Jesus, they came back after going through the surrounding regions and preaching the gospel and casting out demons and, and God was healing through them and all. And they came back and said to Jesus, I mean, even the demons are... Uh, you know, answer subject to us. And Jesus said, don't be, uh, uh, you know, impressed by that. Uh, I saw uh, Satan uh, fall from heaven. Be impressed with the fact that your name is written uh, in the book of life. And Jesus spoke about uh, that, that fall, that casting down from that position. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. 
you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might uh, gaze at you. And so uh, here, uh, due to his rebellion, uh, cast down, and, uh, and you, uh, you defy, uh, defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. Uh, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And so one day uh, the judgment of the devil is going to be as thorough uh, as the, the judgment that fell upon the prince uh, of Tyre. Uh, it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is important to realize, if you've never heard it before, that the devil does not rule in heaven. Never believe those comic strips in the newspaper. Uh, he is a participant, I mean in hell. He is a participant in hell, in Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire. He does not uh, rule there. The reaction of, of hell or Gehenna upon his arrival, verse 19, all who knew you uh, among the peoples are astonished at you, and you have become a horror and shall be no more forever. People are going to be stunned when they ultimately uh, see the beauty of the, uh, of the devil one day and outwardly and, uh, and all of the kind of wisdom and privileges that he had and that something could be that beautiful, come from that kind of perfection and ultimately become so grotesque, so ugly, so indescribably awful. And that's what pride uh, does and what it turns a human being uh, into. And they'll uh, marvel at the end of pride in terms of even with the devil, in terms of the eternal lake of, of fire. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, here now he makes a prophecy against Sidon, which is commonly referred to with Tyre in the Old Testament. They were both these kind of harbor uh, uh, kingdom towns. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon and, uh, and prophesy against her. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be uh, judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. And the reason for Sidon's judgment, remember this goes all the way back as we uh, into chapter uh, 25 where God began to speak about his judgment on the nations that surrounded Israel because they rejoiced in his judgment upon the children of Israel. And he, he spoke about Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia, then Tyre, and then now he moves on to Sidon. And, the, and it was the same thing. It was, it was the same sin of rejoicing in God's judgment upon the Jews. Those in Sidon did the same thing, 
and it displeased the Lord. They took, they took advantage of God's chastening of His people to then pile on, and as we've already seen uh, in the earlier chapters, that God notices that, and it, it greatly displeases Him, and, and He then will turn and judge us if we uh, participate in that kind of thing. And then, then He moves on, and uh, uh, the, uh, and declares, and there shall no longer be uh, a prickling uh, briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them or who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And so God is speaking all the way from, concluding from chapter 25, talking about what all these nations did to try and, and uh, heap on, even more suffering upon the children of Israel. And, and the Lord said uh, that he would remove this prickling briar or painful thorn that they were to the house of Israel. And then he spoke wonderfully of, of uh, his plan for Israel in the future. Thus says the Lord God, uh, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land which I gave to my servant Jacob. God reiterates the fact that uh, this judgment is going to be a period of 70 years in Babylon, but they will return uh, to their land. And uh, they shall dwell safely there, build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they shall dwell securely when I execute judgments on all of those around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am uh, the Lord their God. And so, again, Israel was very disobedient to the Lord. He chastened them, but uh, we are to steer clear of piling on to any chastening that God does in, a, uh, in, in the lives of His children. And uh, again, never ever uh, uh, bet against Israel and the plans that, uh, that God has for Israel. The yet future. Everyone has to be saved the same way, but God still has a, a, a portion of his, his future plans still involve um, Israel. And then coming to recognize uh, Jesus as, as their Messiah. One of the dangers that these surrounding nations, we, we've looked at in the past how it was that uh, Judah, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel prior to them, playing fast and loose with sin, all of the idolatry, all of the debauchery, everything. They were, uh, they were putting in jeopardy uh, God's plan to do the single greatest thing that he intended to do th for, for the world through them as a people, and that was to bring the Messiah into the world. Uh, Jesus hadn't been born yet. It was to come through this bloodline. And they were, uh, they were putting all of that in jeopardy uh, with their sin. But when these other nations jumped on and sought the destruction of the Jews, at that same time, for their own benefit, uh, they were coming against Jesus. Uh, Jesus hadn't been born yet. Uh, Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so these nations found themselves on the wrong side of God and on the wrong side of, of his prophecies and his plan, uh, c plans concerning, uh, concerning the Messiah, chapter 29. 
And then now he turns to his prophecies. He's talked with all these other nations, and now he addresses kind of the biggest uh, culprit in, in failing uh, Israel and Judah at this time, and that is uh, Egypt. In the 10th year, on the 10th month, and on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came uh, to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him, and not only against him, but against all of uh, Egypt. And so this uh, prophecy, it dates to the winter months of 588 B.C., 587 B.C., and, uh, and just a few months before uh, the Babylonians had laid siege to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the, Egypt was going to come up out of Egypt to attack the Babylonians in order to break the siege off of Jerusalem. The Babylonians would break away from that siege and then uh, push uh, Egypt back into their own boundaries and then reestablish the siege over Jerusalem, take it. But after they had taken Jerusalem, then they proceeded to go back south now and uh, to uh, even things up. Uh, with with uh, Egypt, and so uh, and the prophecy that Ezekiel is giving here is intended to, months ahead of time to cause any Jews who were believing that somehow deliverance for Jerusalem was going to come on the basis of some uh, deliverance at the hands of of, uh, of Egypt that that was completely false. Their only hope laid lie in, in repenting of their sins and, and turning uh, back to God. The Pharaoh that's described here is Pharaoh Hophra, and, uh, and he's singled out really for this, uh, because of his promises that he made of assistance to, uh, to Judah uh, against, uh, with Babylon. And so speak and, and say, thus says the Lord, verse 3, behold, I'm against you. Add those two, uh, uh, the words I never want to hear God say uh, to me or to anyone. I mean, you're on the wrong side of things here. O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, my river, speaking of the Nile, is my own. And so the great pride that Egypt had in their uh, rivers, uh, and it's a tremendous system of tributaries and rivers that are in Egypt and water, principally the Nile. And, uh, and so uh, the pride that he had related to the river, and then here is pride uh, gone crazy uh, where he believed that he had made it for himself. Now, how do, you, how do you get up in the morning and look in the mirror and tell yourself, you made the Nile? Well, you might do that, but how do you get up in front of people and tell them that? I mean, for the same reasons that we're talking about the Prince of, of Tyre. It's absolute nonsense. And so, but this is the self-deception. And of course, the Egyptians at this point in time they did believe that their pharaohs were uh, divine, at least a step above human beings, and, and uh, had this uh, divinity and, and viewed as, as a god. Uh, and uh, so he likens them, uh, Egypt, and the judgment that God is going to bring upon Egypt by the hands of the Babylonians. He likens uh, Pharaoh to be a crocodile. That's what he's talking about in terms of the creature in the Nile. And then the fish that are associated with the crocodile are the people of Egypt. The crocodile is going to be pulled out of the Nile. It's going to be put out on uh, dry land as he describes it here. And, and the, what God is prophesying 
testifying to Pharaoh is that, uh, listen, when we go head to head here, uh, you are uh, going to be as vulnerable uh, and I will make you as vulnerable as a crocodile who has been removed from uh, a water and put out in the middle of the desert uh, with fish attached to him. I mean, he was going to become an open prey, but he uses the imagery of what they had, uh, were proud of, their crocodiles, their fish, uh, their river. And, and so here, I have made it for myself, and then here is the significant but there. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause your fish of your rivers to stick into in, your scales. I will bring you out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness you and all the fish of your rivers, and you shall fall in the open field, and you shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of uh, the heavens. And then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, uh, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel when they took hold of you with the hand, speaking of Judah, taking hold and leaning upon uh, the reed that Egypt promised to be to them. You broke and tore all their shoulders. In other words, they, they fell in a great fall. When they leaned on you, you broke and made them uh, all their backs quiver. And so uh, you have, in the ancient world, it's true today, but certainly in the ancient world, it was very uh, common for, uh, you know, people to use walking sticks and, and, uh, and for the purpose of walking, also for the purpose of protection. And, of course, you would want a walking stick that you could put your full weight on if you ever needed. You started to fall. And, uh, and so uh, you've got to, got to make a walking stick out of something that's better than a reed or a piece of bamboo because bamboo can break and it can splinter under you and, and, you'll, and it'll disappoint you at the very moment that you need it. And that's what Egypt did uh, to the children of, of Israel and, and God uh, uh, noticed it and, and, uh, and pronounces his judgment uh, upon them. God had made those promises and then when Jesus to put the slightest weight upon those promises, uh, it, it, all of it collapsed. And so uh, Egypt's great mistake was that Egypt provided uh, the Jewish people with an option to repenting and turning back to God. That's what they needed to do. They didn't need help from somebody else. It, it's, it's a tremendous responsibility as a, uh, a human being, and certainly as a Christian, to have the time, uh, to have the financial resources, uh, to have connections, to be able to help people out of the fixes that they're in. And especially if there are loved ones but the thing that we always have to pause and do, it isn't a thing of, well, they have the need, I have the resources, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to bail them out of this. And we can find ourselves in exactly the place that Egypt found themselves in, and that is getting between God and what he's trying to do in this person's life. And it always ends up being a disaster. And that's why it's so important to pray 
and say, Lord, am I supposed to jump in here and help? Or am I just going to get in the way and do further uh, damage here? And now you'll have to judge me to get me out of the way so you can have them alone. And uh, that was the mistake that, that Egypt made. And we have to be careful about uh, that, that same, uh, same mistake. And then he speaks about the judgment that would uh, ultimately befall them. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off uh, from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste, and they will know that I am the Lord because he said, the river is mine and I have made it. It is good to realize that uh, all of us here in this world, I don't care if you've got a mortgage and you've paid your mortgage off, we're all renting here. The world belongs to God. When, he gave, when God gave authority to the world, to Adam and Eve, that was a stewardship. That was not a go ahead and destroy the whole thing. Um, and, 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 and so here makes him know, listen, the Nile River doesn't belong to anybody but me, just like the Mississippi and, and, and everything else in the world. I have made it. It's, it's God's by virtue of creation. And indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate, from Migdol to uh, Syene as far as the border of Ethiopia. And neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited for 40 years, and I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and among the cities that are laid waste. Her city shall be desolate for 40 years, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them uh, throughout uh, the countries. And uh, so Babylon did ultimately come in, defeat uh, Egypt, invade uh, Egypt. Uh, certainly, uh, they would have taken captives from among the Egyptians as they did every other nation that they, uh, they conquered. And thus says the, yet thus says the Lord, verse 13, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from uh, the peoples among whom they are scattered. I will return them to their land after 40 years, not 70. So the children of Israel, they owed God uh, for the neglect of uh, giving God his Sabbath year for 490 years. They owed God 70 years. Egypt would be 40 years. And I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros and to the land of their origin. And they shall, there they shall be a lowly kingdom. Verse 15 is a very interesting prophecy concerning Egypt. It shall be the lowest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations uh, anymore. Uh, fascinating that Egypt was one of the great civilizations in human history, and uh, certainly the power in, uh, in the Middle Eastern world it, uh, for such a long period of time. And yet, God says, uh, af after what happens here, with this defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, uh, you will n never rise to that, that power or have that kind of a position in the world or the region ever again. You're never going to rule over nations again. And so we see it for a long, long history now. Egypt exists. Uh, it is, uh, it is the, a, a great nation in its own right um, in the Middle East, but it is a shell of its former self in terms of influence and in terms of 
uh, of, uh, of uh, ruling over anything uh, above itself. And so they, uh, God said, after this, you'll be a nation, but you'll be in a diminished capacity. And so we see it uh, every time we read an article about uh, Egypt uh, today. No longer will it be the confidence of the house of Israel, uh, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turn to follow them then they shall know that I am the Lord God. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Remember, as we saw last time, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who gave the first shot at trying to uh, conquer the city of Tyre in its original place before they moved a half mile uh, to the island a half mile off of uh, the shore. And, uh, and, and Nebuchadnezzar committed 13 years uh, to the siege and the attempted conquest of Tyre. And by the time he broke through the walls and into the city, all of the wealth had been moved to the city that had been uh, built uh, a half mile offshore. He didn't uh, uh, get anything to reward his army. In the ancient world, uh, you, you took the spoils from the country that you uh, defeated in order to pay your military. Again, militaries are expensive things. We'll, we will find out in our, in our nation's history uh, as soon as we start dealing with a deficit and we realize that <laughs> you just can't print money indefinitely and I uh, well, hope I die before, you know, that uh, bill comes due. But, you know, we're one of the few nations where we go in and we, we fight people and then uh, we don't uh, demand a recompense for the expense. In fact, we then pay to rebuild the nation that we were forced to, to deal with. And, uh, but that wasn't the way it worked in the ancient world. Things were a little more black and white. On, on all of that. And so he had labored. Uh, the Lord had prophesied that he would do so to take Tyre, but he didn't receive any uh, payment, and God will not be any man's debtor. And, uh, uh, and the, the, the level of work, the level of, of labor that went into trying to conquer the city is described there in verse 18. Every head was made bald. You can see them, the siege works that are putting up against the city. Here are the men, they're pushing on these logs, pushing on everything, their hairs being, you know, kind of uh, uh, ground away. Every uh, head made bald, every shoulder rub raw. I mean, it speaks about the immense labor, 13 years worth, and, and yet uh, neither he nor his army received any wages from Tyre for the labor that they expended on it. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage, and, uh, and that it will be the wages for his army. And I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me says the Lord. So the Lord isn't saying that this is his principle. In general, he's not advocating the looting of nations in order to uh, enrich another nation, but he is saying that Babylon was his instrument and uh, of judgment, the children of Israel, and he would make sure that they would be recompensed for that. And in that day, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to uh, spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak uh, in their midst, and they shall know 
that I am the Lord. And so when these things would uh, come, uh, come to pass, and uh, then there would be the recognition uh, as, as, as Israel would find themselves back in the land, horn speaking of power, uh, they would become a, a, a strong uh, once again as they're restored into, the, into their land following their captivities, also for uh, the Egyptians as well. Uh, that uh, that he would he would renew the strength of of Israel that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and so Ezekiel he delivered this message to the people so that when it came to pass they would know uh, that God alone is the Lord and so we'll stop there tonight and pick it up this continued uh, uh, pronouncement of judgment upon. Uh, Egypt, it, it occurs, for, I think, for another three chapters until we get to 33, and we'll pick that up um, next time. Uh, some of you are… are uh, uh, John Bachman, would you come up? Uh,